Well, today we're beginning a new series of messages, and I'm very excited about this new series. And here is the purpose. Are you ready, church? To prepare us to celebrate Easter more powerfully and more passionately than ever before. Now, if you've been a part of our church family, you know that during the month of December, I always do a series of messages to prepare us for what? What, what big holiday happens in December? Make sure you're with me, okay? What is it? You give presents to each other. Christmas. Yes, Christmas. And it's about more than presents. During Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Why do we celebrate? Well, because his birth changes everything. Now, in just a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why do we celebrate Easter? Because Easter changes everything. In this world that is so often filled with trouble and disappointment and heartache and challenges of all kinds, Easter gives us the one thing we cannot live without, hope. Now, traditionally, the time before Easter is called Lent. How many of you are familiar with that word, Lent? It's a 40-day period, and it symbolizes the time that Jesus spent in the wilderness being tempted before he launched his public ministry. And traditionally, Lent is a time when people engage in, in reflection and self-examination. Uh, many people fast in different ways or give up some normal activity to have more time to reflect and pray. And so during this time leading up to Easter, I really hope that these messages will prepare us to understand Easter and to celebrate Easter like never before. Now, the title of this new series, can anybody guess the title of the new series? What do you think it is? Yes, it is Risen. And there's a new movie that came out this weekend by the same title. Has anybody heard of the movie or seen the movie? We're actually going to show you a couple of video clips from the movie um, during the message this morning. But here's a storyline. There is this very powerful Roman soldier. He's a centurion. And he's been tasked by Pontius Pilate to investigate the disappearance of Jesus' body. He's trying to gather evidence to prove that Jesus is not alive, that he is a dead Messiah, and he's trying to quell this uprising that's starting to grow in the city of Jerusalem with these rumors that Jesus is alive. Now, one more thing before I begin the message today. I know that as some of you came in, you saw these books that were on the tables over here. In fact, I have one right here. And you probably wondered, what in the world is that about? Well, let me tell you. Um, about a week and a half ago, uh, a friend of our church, this is someone who's not a member, but just someone who's a friend of our church, came to my office and said, hey Dudley, I got this book and it was really powerful and beautiful and what I'd like to ask you is this, would it be okay with you if I bought one for every family in the church? And I said, well, yeah, that'd be okay with me. Um, and he said, well, I wanna give you one so you can look at it first. And I said, well, sure. And this is a beautifully illustrated book about the life of Jesus. It's filled with scripture, the artwork is stunning. It's reproductions of classical art from hundreds of years ago. And here's what I want you to do. This is an Easter gift um, to each one of you. Um, as you leave this morning, please pick one up, one per family. And what I want to encourage you to do is this, read through this together as a family, as a way to prepare for Easter. So let me do this as we begin the message. I want to focus on a very important question, and it's there on your outline. The question is this. What happens when people meet Jesus at the cross? Answering that question is gonna help us get ready for Easter. 
How does that experience of meeting Jesus change somebody's life? And here's what I want to do. I want to kind of look back in time and look at some of the people that were there, people that saw Jesus die, and how that experience shaped their lives, and then look at us today. What difference does it make for us if we meet Jesus at the cross? So let's begin with this verse that comes from one of the Gospels, one of the biographies of Jesus. It's from the Gospel of John, and it tells us who was there when Jesus died. This is what the scripture says. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, four women are mentioned in this verse. And we discover in another gospel account that there are a number of women who are traveling along with Jesus and his disciples as they go from town to town. And in fact, these women are financially supporting the ministry of Christ and the disciples. Now, one of the women who traveled with Jesus and his disciples was Mary Magdalene. And the Bible tells us a little bit about her story. Before she met Jesus, she was possessed by seven demons. Now that's kind of hard for us to even wrap our minds around, <clears throat> but we know this, that she must have been an incredibly troubled woman. I mean, emotionally and spiritually, she must have been a mess, a train wreck before she met Jesus. She's living in bondage. She has no hope. She, she just doesn't think that there's any way out of her situation, and then she meets Christ. And this is really remarkable when it comes to her life. We see from her story that she follows Jesus around the countryside from town to town, that Mary Magdalene is there when Jesus is crucified. And she had to have a very special relationship with Jesus because she is the first person that sees Jesus alive, according to two of the gospel accounts. And here's what I want you to see from the life of Mary Magdalene, because it applies to us. At the cross, we find redemption. At the cross, we find redemption. We get a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance because of God's grace, because of God's mercy. Jesus came to take us from darkness to light, from, from guilt to grace, from failure to freedom. I heard a story one time about Abraham Lincoln, and <clears throat> certain historians have um, thought that this story may be allegorical rather than literal, but this is what the story says. One time, Abraham Lincoln comes upon the scene where this young black slave girl is being auctioned to the highest bidder. So Lincoln decides that he's going to join the bidding, and by intention, he outbids everybody, and so he wins the prize, the young black girl who's being sold. And he goes up to her and he says, young lady, you are free. And she says, what does that mean? He says, well, you're, you're free. And she says, well, does that mean that I'm free to say anything I want to you? And Lincoln says, yeah, you, you are free to say anything you want to me. She says, it, is, is that freedom something where I can be anybody I want to be? And, and Lincoln says, yeah, you can be whoever you want to be. And she says, well, am I free to go anywhere I want to go? Thinking that there was no way that Lincoln would ever release her. And he said, yeah, you are free to go wherever you want to go. And she said, well, if that's the case, and, and the tears were streaming down her face, she said, if that's the case, I want to go with you. If you're a Christian this morning, the Bible says that you were once enslaved to sin and Jesus Christ paid the ransom for you. And the response of a redeemed heart is to say, Jesus, I want to go with you. I want to follow you. Now in this movie, Risen, Mary Magdalene um, is somebody who has made that decision. She's said, Jesus, I want to follow you. And she's experienced redemption. She's experienced freedom. And I want you to watch this brief clip where she's being interrogated by this Roman centurion. Let's watch. 
Why did you run from us? Instinct. I've seen you before. My other life. At Yeshua's death, you were there beside his mother. Was she also the woman with you at his tomb? If you knew what happened there, all cares would cease. Enlighten me then. It's beyond us. Spare me the riddles and zealot babble. Where did you take Yeshua? He's right here. Is he a goblin? A sprite? Alive again somehow? Open your heart and see. I see delusion. To keep a crusade alive. I could have what I want. Pulled from you. Put you to death like that. It doesn't matter. Uh, a matter. No. Then give me the others and I'll grant you freedom. I'm already free. Show me the Messiah, alive or dead. And show me those who follow him. You look for something you'll never find, Tribune. You look for the wrong thing. Did you hear what Mary Magdalene said when the centurion offers her freedom in exchange for her cooperation? She says, I'm already what? I'm already free. That's because at the cross, we find the freedom of redemption. And here's something else we find at the cross. We find relationships. At the cross, we find relationships. As Jesus is dying on the cross, he looks at the people gathered there. And this is what the Bible says. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Becoming a follower of Jesus Christ is not just about believing. It's about belonging to God's family. Yesterday, we had a, a membership seminar and I was talking to people in the class about the difference between the Teflon church and the Velcro church. Teflon church is where people come in the front door and slide out the back door. The Velcro church is where people come in the front door and they stick. They actually become a part of a church family. Now why, why do people choose to do that? And I think it's for two reasons. First of all, when somebody feels like they're loved and accepted, that people really care about them, they wanna be with that group of people. Do you remember the, um, the TV show Cheers? I talked about this yesterday too, the theme song. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows you're what? And they're always glad you came. You want to see our troubles are all the what? The same. And that's what a church family should be like. So when people feel loved and accepted, that helps them stick in a church. The second thing is when people feel useful. When they think, I've got something to contribute. I have a gift or an ability that'll help our church. And I want you to know this. You know, sometimes you come to a church, and, and if you're new to our church, you may think, well, everything's working just fine. They don't really need me. I'll just come on Sunday morning. We need you. 
We need every single person to realize that you have been shaped to serve. And here's the deal. This is really important. You cannot accomplish God's purpose for your life without your church family. You need other people. And that's why the Bible talks about the church in these terms. The church is called the body of Christ. Now, let me ask you this. Do the parts of your body need each other? Of course. That's common sense. Do the parts of your body belong together? Well, yeah, I hope they stay together. But here's the point. God made us so that we really need each other. We belong to one another. We're going to accomplish his purpose together. And look at this verse that reminds us of that. This is from Romans chapter 12. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all of the others. And just a few moments ago, when we were a witness to Zachary and his baptism, and I was talking about Randy and Chris and the Whitcomb family, who have been here from the very beginning of our church, I was thinking about this fact that God has brought us together and that we belong to each other. And that leads to this next statement that I want you to think about with me. At the cross, at the cross, we find responsibility for each other. And I think it's remarkable that as Jesus is dying, he looks at his mother and he's concerned because he knows that he's not going to be around to take care of her. And so he looks at his best friend, John, and he says, hey, Mary, here's your son. John, here's your mom. And so his best friend takes his mom and cares for her for the rest of her life. And what that means for us is that God wants us to be responsible for each other. I know this. I know that a day is coming when I'm going to have a conversation with Jesus. And I know this because the scripture says this, and he's going to ask me a very important question. Dudley, what kind of job did you do taking care of my sheep at Boynton Beach Community Church? That's a sobering question. That's a serious responsibility. But it is also a shared responsibility, and I'm really thankful for that. Because we have people here on our leadership team, our elders, our deacons, our staff, our ministry leaders, and I share that responsibility with them. And church, here's what needs to happen. If our church is going to grow, and God wants our church to grow, God wants to bring more sheep into the fold, so to speak. But if you want to take care of more sheep, what do you need? It's real simple. More shepherds. More people that are willing to step up and step into the lives of other people and help meet their needs. And that's what I'm praying that God will do. That God will raise up more people who are willing to invest their lives in others so that our church can grow. And let me say this. There's a a certain mindset in the American church that really is influenced by our culture because many people in America subscribe to this idea of being a, a rugged individual. You know, I can pull myself up by my what, own what? Bootstraps. And so this kind of translates into their view of Christianity and they think that Christianity is primarily this, Jesus and me. You know, it's me and you, Jesus. We can get through anything. We can do anything. We can climb any mountain. But here's the reality. That's just the beginning When you become a Christian, yeah, it's Jesus and you because he saved you. But guess what? You just got born into a family. You were just adopted. You have brothers and sisters. So it's not just Jesus and me. It's Jesus and what? We. Because we belong to each other. We are going to accomplish God's purpose for us together. So when you come to the cross, when you decide to follow Jesus, it changes everything. 
And that's because the cross is a place you find redemption, a place that you find relationships, a place that you find responsibility. And that brings us to this next question to consider this morning. How does meeting Jesus at the cross strengthen us? Because it does. But how does that happen? When we look back at the cross and remember what happened, how does that make us strong? Well, here's the first thing. The cross strengthens our confidence in God. Our confidence in God. Now, here's another scene from the movie Risen. And it's where one of the disciples named Bartholomew is questioned by the Roman centurion. Let's watch. Who's Bartholomew? I am he. Bring him. What you have to win by spreading fantasy. By mine own eyes, Tribune, I, I, I walked with him. He spoke to me. <laughs> it's unbelievable, but it is so. And conjure him up right now. <laughs> or show me the body he must have shed like a snakeskin. God is not at my beck and call. God, Yahweh manifests himself through a crazy, poor, dead Jew. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it appears. And what does this rebirth mean? Eternal life, but for, for everyone, everyone who believes. Marvelous recruiting tool, much better than salt. How many are you? Well, we are few for now, and our only weapon is love. Did you catch that statement? We are few for now, and our only weapon is what? Love. What happens at the cross strengthens our confidence in God's love for us. Look at this verse from 1 John. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world. Notice this, that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. How many of you have ever heard this statement, God loves you? How many of you have heard that? at some point in your life, probably every single person in this room. We hear that statement, and then something happens that causes us to doubt that it's true. Could be cancer, the loss of a baby, an auto accident, struggling with an addiction, seeing some tragedy or atrocity of war or terrorism, could be all kinds of stuff. And when those things happen, when we experience those things, sometimes we wonder, well, if God is all good and if God is all powerful, then how can this God allow such evil and pain and suffering, not just in the world, but into my life and the life of those I love? And church, this is a question that people have wrestled with since the days of Adam and Eve. It's a question that I've wrestled with and continue to wrestle with. I've written papers on this in graduate school. And I could spend hours or even days talking about the problem of evil and the sovereignty of God. But I've come to realize there are certain things that I cannot know and may never know. I remember one time hearing R.C. Sproul. Um, how many of you are familiar with that name? He's a theologian. I actually had R.C. Sproul as one of my teachers in graduate school. And he said that once he became a Christian, a Christian his whole life became a quest to answer one question. Who are you, God, and why do you do the things that you do? Well, I've been searching 
for the answer to that question for many years myself. And I know this, that God is not obligated to explain himself to me because he's God and I'm not. And the Bible says that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And if you read the story of Job who undergoes great suffering and pain, does God ever explain to Job what's going on exactly? No. God shows himself powerful and sovereign and essentially says, Job, I'm God and you're not, so trust me. And when it comes to understanding this problem of evil and the sovereignty of God, I'll tell you what I do know. I know that when we made a mess of God's world through our sinful and selfish choices, that God just didn't turn away. He didn't abandon us. He stepped into the middle of the mess that we had created. And Jesus Christ became a human being and he suffered with us and he suffered for us and he suffered for this reason, to put an end to the evil and an end to the suffering. And listen, whenever I am struggling with those thoughts of God's goodness and God's grace, and how do you reconcile that with pain and evil and suffering? Do you know what I do? Very simple. I look at the cross. And I remember what happened there. I remember that there was this great conflict between good and evil, that there was a struggle between hope and despair. And on the cross, I see a love that is so strong that it crushes despair. A love so strong that it it destroys evil, a love that is so strong that it can create faith in our hearts so that we can trust God, listen, even when we don't understand him. That's the power of God's love. And confidence that God really loves you, an unshakable confidence in that truth is a very practical thing. How many of you ever experience anxiety? Okay, I mean, we all probably worry to some degree. Do you know what the real cure for anxiety is? Let, let me explain it this way. Here's why you worry, and me too. It's because we're afraid that we're not going to have what we need, right? I mean, we worry that we won't have enough money, right? If I don't have the money I need, I'm going to, whatever, things are not going to go well, so I worry. I'm anxious. Or what about this? Maybe you're a parent, and you've got a situation you're dealing with with your son or your daughter, and you don't know what to say. You don't know what to do. You don't have the wisdom and so you worry because you don't have the wisdom that, that you need. Or it could be the strength or the patience, whatever it is. But here's the reality. God has promised to give you everything you need to accomplish his purpose for your life. Now, how can we really be convinced of that? And here's the answer. Look at the cross. I want to show you a verse. And this is a verse that I go back to again and again whenever I start to worry. And it really is so helpful. Look at this verse, Romans 8, 32. He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Do you see the logic there? I mean, our greatest need is a need for a savior. And if God met that need, won't he meet every other need as well? Now, the cross strengthens our confidence in God's love. And the cross does this. It strengthens our confidence in God's grace. That's the next thing on your outline. God's love and God's grace. Look at this verse from Ephesians 4. It is by grace you have been rescued, saved. How? Through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the, and what's that next word, church? It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Now, I want you to think with me about a hypothetical situation. Are you ready? Okay. Let's say that I decide 
that I really want to surprise my wife. Let's say it's Valentine's Day. We'll kind of rewind to last Sunday. Let's say that I, I want to surprise my, my wife with a really special gift for Valentine's Day. So I get really adventurous and I decide I'm going to go buy her a dress all by myself. I've done that in the past with my daughter along, but I, I'm going to do it by myself this time. Some of you guys are shaking your heads like, that's not a good idea. It's hypothetical, okay? It's a fictitious story. Some relationship with truth. But anyway, so I go to the store and I buy this dress and, and it's just, it's perfect. I mean, I, I take it home, I wrap it up, I give it to my wife, Chris, on Valentine's Day. And I said, Here, honey, this is for you. And she opens it up and I can tell immediately by the look on her face, she is thrilled, right? It's just the right size, it's just the right color, the right style. And she goes, honey, thank you so much. And she gives me a big kiss. And then I look at my wife and I say, you know what? There's something I need to tell you. Um, you know, even though that dress was on sale, it cost me a hundred bucks and you need to pay me back. <laughs> now guys, do you think that would go well? <laughs> Probably not. Maybe after, you know, a week of sleeping on the couch, we would have a follow-up conversation. But, but here's the deal. Why would my wife be upset if I said that? Because it's a gift. You don't pay for a gift. You just receive it as an expression of love. You don't give somebody a gift because they've earned it or because they deserve it. You give it because you love them. And listen, if you're a Christian this morning, this is so important to, to know and to remember and to reflect on. God has given you an incredible gift, the gift of a new life, and you don't deserve it. And neither do I. And we can't earn it. You can't be good enough for God to be obligated to save you, to rescue you. It is by his grace. And here's why this is so important. If you're married this morning, let me just ask you a question. You can nod your head or say the answer out loud. In order to have a really close relationship with your husband or wife, do you need grace? The answer is yes. Where does that grace come from? Well, you see, if you're really standing under this waterfall of God's grace on an ongoing basis and opening your heart to the fact that God just loves you, that you didn't earn it, that you don't deserve it, guess what? Now you have grace in your heart to give another person. And that makes all the difference in the world, not just in marriage, but in all of our relationships. Take a look at your outline. The cross strengthens our confidence in God's love and God's grace and finally in God's power. Our confidence in God's power. Now, think about this. Think about being one of the disciples and you're there at the cross and Jesus dies right in front of your eyes. Think about the despair that they feel. I mean, for the last three years, they've been following Jesus around. They've been listening to his teaching. They have believed that he is the Messiah, that he's gonna somehow save them and save their, their Jewish nation but he got arrested and they beat him up and they crucified him and now he's dead. And Jesus isn't the only thing that's dead. Their hopes and their dreams are dead. And what's amazing, when you start reading the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, you get into the book of Acts and you start reading about what the disciples are doing, there's this amazing transformation. The disciples that were terrified, these, these disciples that were huddled in a room you know, in fear of their life because the Romans were coming for them next, now they're courageously confronting the very people who crucified Christ. Now, why is that? Because they were confident in God's power when they looked back at the cross. And let me show you why that is the case. This is a, a, 
a passage from Acts chapter 4. And let me just say this, the context, this is actually a prayer. The believers are together, and this is their collective prayer expressed in Acts chapter 4. They're talking to God. God, indeed Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city in Jerusalem to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. They did, now catch this, this is a really dramatic statement, and they're praying this to God. God, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Do you realize the implications of that? Because when Jesus is arrested, it looks like everything's out of control. Have you ever, have you ever looked at your life and said, you know what, my life is out of control? Have you ever looked at the life of somebody you care about and said, their life is out of control? Have you ever looked at our nation and that things are getting out of control? I want to assure you of this fact. God is in control of all things. He is sovereign. And when you ever begin to question that or doubt that, you look back at the cross and you remember the power of a sovereign God to bring good out of evil and joy out of suffering in his way and in his time. Now, let me um, point out another way that the cross strengthens us. The cross strengthens our conviction of sin. Now, I want to make a very clear distinction between two ideas, and this is really, really important. It's the distinction between being condemned by sin and being convicted of sin. Now, look at this verse. This is from the eighth chapter of Romans. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's talking about believers. Right? If you're in Christ and you've trusted Jesus as your Savior and you are no longer condemned. Now, that's a great thing, isn't it? I mean, when God looks at a Christian, it's as if that person never sinned. If you're a Christian, you are guilt-free in the eyes of God. Your past is settled and done. That's a great thing. But what's the implication? Well, if you're not in Christ, what's the case? You're condemned. And you think, whoa, that sounds serious. It is. And it is the bad news that helps us understand the good news of the gospel. Because here's the deal. The Bible is clear. We've all sinned. I remember um, David Nicholas, the pastor who um, founded Spanish River Church. And uh, he's in heaven this morning. He died a couple of years ago. But I remember the first time that I heard him talk about this idea of sin. He didn't call it sin. You know what he called it? Crimes against God. And that got my attention. Crimes against God. Man, that sounds serious. And think about this. I know when I look at myself in the mirror, I don't think of myself as a criminal. Do you think of yourself as a criminal? But God does, because if you break the law, you're a lawbreaker. If you break the law, it is a crime. Whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony, it's still a crime. And from God's point of view, sin is really, really serious. It's so serious that his son had to die so that our relationship with God could be restored. And that is the good news of the gospel. Yet we're separated by sin, and God is holy and just and has to punish our sin, and that punishment is to die and to be separated from him forever. But God is love. And in his love, he provides a substitute, somebody to take the condemnation, the punishment for me. That's what the cross is all about. And you've heard me say this so many times, that on the cross, God is willing to put our sin on Jesus and punish him in our place. The wrath of God that we deserve is poured out on Jesus. He dies, but then he comes back to life. And when you become a Christian, you are no longer condemned. Isn't that great news? But let me ask you this. If you're a Christian, do you ever sin? If you say no, that just proves my point. <laughs> of course you do. 
We all do with our thoughts and our words and our actions, but here's the deal. When you're a Christian, you're not condemned by sin, but, but God will do this. He will convict you of your sin. In fact, we should ask God to do that. God, if there's something in my heart that displeases you, if, if I'm off the path you want me to follow, please point that out to me. And God does, and God will, through the work of his Holy Spirit. And this is so important for us to realize. Now, I was thinking um, earlier this week as I was working on the message that if you look at the history of our nation, um, a few decades before the Revolutionary War, there was this revival that broke out in America. They call it the First Great Awakening. And it changed the landscape of America and American life. Because people were serious about sin, they repented, people confessed. It affected not just their relationship with God, but their relationships with each other. And then around the 1800s, there was what was called the Second Great Awakening. But do you know what precipitated each one of those revivals? What brought them about? It was a conviction and a confession of sin. Now, when I think about our nation, I pray all the time for God to bring revival. I think we all should. But here's something really important to realize about revival. Revival does not start in the White House. It starts in God's house. It starts with us, the church. I remember a story about a pastor had a man in his church come to him and say, Pastor, I want to pray about revival, but I don't know where to start. Pastor said, well, I can show you. He said, draw a six-foot circle, stand in the middle of it, and ask God to bring revival to everything standing in that circle. It's good advice because God will hear and answer that prayer. And let me say this um, as I wrap up this idea. I think all of us are familiar with the term political correctness. And it has really um, found its way even into the church. And this week I saw something that was rather amusing. Um, This is a politically correct term for sin. Sin is a state of being ethically non-enlightened. Seriously? And here are some phrases that you can use instead of sinner. You don't want to tell anybody they're a sinner, right? Um, You are morally dyslexic. Or you are spiritually challenged. Can you imagine you lie to somebody or you steal money from your company and say, look, I'm really sorry, I was just morally challenged. And here's the thing. It doesn't matter how you dress up sin. Sin is sin. And sin is serious because it is rebellion against a holy God. And here's something that's important for us, church. We need to remember that it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. Here's a a passage from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And boy, this is a, a passage that packs a punch. Because it talks about Jesus and what he suffered for us. This is a prophecy. It says this, but he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And then it says this about us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He died so that we could be forgiven. Jesus on the cross, many of you may be familiar with this. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I believe that was a reference to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know why Jesus went through that experience of being crushed and forsaken? Because he loves you that much and he loves me that much. And friends, this conviction that our sins put Jesus on the cross 
it emerges into this joy of forgiveness. Now look at this verse. This is from Romans. This is where we want to go. Now, blessed are those, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord, notice this, will never count against them. Man, the, the past is finished and gone. It's a new day, new heart, new life. That's something to be really thankful for. And that brings us to this last point on your outline. The cross strengthens our compassion for people. The cross strengthens our compassion for people. Here's what the Apostle Paul says about the mission of Jesus to rescue us and give us a new life. He says this, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And then Paul goes on and he says this, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Every Sunday, we give you an opportunity to write down prayer requests. And every week, I take those prayer requests and I pray through every single one of them. And there are a number of people in our church that do the same thing. And one of the prayer requests that I see over and over again is for the salvation of my family, for my husband, for my kids, for my grandkids. Let me ask you this. Let me put that verse up one more time. Be reconciled to God. Is there anybody, if you're a Christian this morning, is there anybody in your life that you want to be reconciled to God? I know that's true for me. For my family and extended family, there are people that I want so very much to know the joy of following Jesus. I want them to discover God's purpose for their life. So what do you do? What can you do if there's somebody that you want to be reconciled to God? Well, it begins with prayer. There are people in my family that I've been praying for, and some of you know this, for decades. And I will continue to pray as long as God gives me breath that God will capture their hearts with his love. And I encourage you, do the same thing. You keep praying and you don't give up because you can pray for people without their permission. And here's the second thing. Build the strongest relational bridge that you can because that's a bridge of influence. You know, when you really get to know somebody, and this could be somebody in your own family, you have to have conversations and spend time together to have that kind of influence in their life. And here's the third thing. Tell them your story. Tell them what Jesus has done for you. In our membership class yesterday, we were talking about this idea of, you know, sharing the good news and the bad news. And I asked this question. How many of you have ever hesitated to have a spiritual conversation because you were afraid that you would be asked a question that you couldn't answer. Almost everybody has that, that trepidation and fear. But let me tell you this. You don't have to know the answer to every question. You have to know what Jesus has done for you. And here's the reality. If somebody saved your life, would you naturally tell other people about that person? Friends, Jesus has saved my life. And I want to tell people what he has done for me. And listen, it's like the story of the blind man in the Bible. You know, I don't know all these questions you're asking me about the Messiah and about Jesus, but I know this. I was blind, but now I see. Tell your story and trust God to change the heart of the person that you love. Let me close with, with this story. This is a true story. Years ago, when I worked as a volunteer at a hospital, I got to know a lovely little girl named Liz who was suffering from a rare life-threatening disease. Her only chance of recovery appeared to be a blood transfusion from her five-year-old brother who had somehow survived the same disease and had developed the antibodies needed 
to combat the illness. The doctor explained the situation to her little brother and asked the little boy if he would be willing to give his blood to his sister. I saw him hesitate for only a moment before taking a deep breath and saying, yes, I'll, I'll do it if it will save her. As the transfusion progressed, he lay in bed next to his sister and smiled, seeing the color returning to her cheeks. Then his face grew pale and his smiles faded. He looked up at the doctor and asked with a trembling voice, Doctor, when do I die? You see, the little boy had misunderstood the doctor. He thought he was going to have to give his sister all of his blood in order to save her life, a sacrifice he was willing to make because he loved her that much. Let's pray. Jesus, that story reminds us of you. Because of your sacrifice. The fact is that you poured out all of your blood so that we could live. And Lord Jesus, thank you. Words can't express the gratitude that we have. And Father, I pray this as we continue this journey toward Easter. God, it's so easy to be overwhelmed by trouble and problems and pressure and all kinds of stuff. But I pray that we'll be overwhelmed with something else, God, overwhelmed with you. Overwhelmed with your goodness, overwhelmed with your grace, overwhelmed with your hope, and that our hearts will be filled with joy and gratitude. And Father, I pray this morning that somebody, maybe for the first time, has understood this, this gospel, this good news about Christ. Maybe they've understood that they're a sinner and they need a Savior. Oh God, I pray that this morning they would simply say in their heart, Jesus, I need you. Please forgive me. I believe you died for my sins and that you rose from the dead and I want a new life. So I want to follow you, Lord, the best I can. God, thank you for always answering that prayer. And Father, as we stand and sing this last song, I pray that it would simply be a, a tribute, a testimony to your goodness and grace and that, Lord, you would overwhelm us with who you are. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing our last song together.